I'm sure you know this kind of person. Everyone seems to. It's someone like the boss at work. They're austere and serious. They've got a reputation as a stickler for the rules. When it comes to a business meeting, they're a tough nut to crack. And you definitely don't want to find yourself in a negotiation with them because they've got an answer for everything and they're very likely to tell you what it is. But then it's drinks on a Friday evening and they're great value. Laughing, joking, asking after your family, showing you pictures of their new puppy on their phone. You realize here's a human being who might have my best interests at heart. And when I think of that kind of person, I'm transported back to my school days. There were a few members of teaching staff who were known as being the slowest with a smile and the quickest with a punishment when somebody dared to break the rules. But we used to host these charity fundraisers where teachers would take part in an X-Factor-style talent show. And the more severe the teacher's reputation, the more delighted they were to put on a silly outfit and make a fool of themselves for the sake of a good cause. Tough on the outside, but a big softy on the inside, really. Now, if it isn't too sacrilegious to suggest it, I wonder if that's the mood of our Bible passage today. We're in the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. And if you're vaguely familiar with Paul, that might fill you with a sense of foreboding. In popular view, the Apostle Paul is a rather glum and severe man who held some old-fashioned views and made sure to tell everybody at length what they were. If that's your view of the Apostle Paul, please bear with me this lunchtime and please keep an open mind. Because here in this chapter, I think we get an insight into what makes Paul tick. It speaks into his motivations as well as his mission. And what cuts through is a big-hearted, soft-hearted love for people. And of course, it's not just about the Apostle Paul. He had a special role as an apostle, which we don't share today. And even as a missionary or a church planter, I suspect that not many of us listening would want to draw like-for-like parallels between his situation and our own. But scratch the surface. And this is a passage for every Christian believer who has ever been misunderstood or misrepresented. is a passage for every disciple of Jesus on a front line somewhere, living and serving and speaking of Jesus in the midst of those who don't know him as Lord and Saviour. It's a passage for us, with our motivations, in our mission. Well, let's dive into it then and start with the first of three points, which emerges in verses one to six. That is, live with integrity. Live with integrity. And let me read those verses uh, again. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 
We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Last week, as we began this series, we filled in the backstory of how a church had come to exist in Thessalonica. Paul and his crack team of co-workers had journeyed into that part of northern Greece and had gone from city to city preaching about Jesus for as long as they were welcome there. People believed in each of those places and churches were established, but Paul and his team were hounded out of city after city too as people objected to his message. So we saw last week that Paul had been forced to flee Thessalonica in the night, smuggled out of the city by a group of his recent converts. And this posed a problem with his reputation. In a culture that valued strength and success, Paul's missionary efforts seemed pretty feeble. In a celebrity culture, Paul had earned himself an undesirable status. Among those who had turned against him, he was a figure of hate. Among those who had sought to follow him, we get the sense he was a figure of fun. It's hard to tell exactly what the accusation was against Paul. Probably that by leaving town so suddenly and so soon that he had let the church down and abandoned them. Possibly that even in his time with them, he'd sought to exploit them more than he had to evangelize them. These were weighty accusations. Paul needed to respond to them, not only to protect his own reputation as a minister of the gospel, but also to teach the Thessalonians what authentic gospel ministry ought to look like. So let's see Paul's defense of himself in these first few verses here. Just glance your eye down the page if you've got a Bible open in front of you and see how many times he says, you know. I make it five times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 11, and in verse 10, you are witnesses, which makes the same point but gives it legal force. The message is clear. The Thessalonians had seen Paul's way of life and knew him to be a man of integrity. Such confidence Paul had in the strength of his own character that he invited and encouraged them to make an assessment of him. So before we go any further, it's worth us asking for ourselves whether we could make a similar claim. One of the revealing things in this pandemic for many people has been that spending more time at home with members of the family has exposed cracks in relationships that were easier to paper over with less time spent together. When we live together or work together over the long term, we really get to know one another deeply. And outside the home, it's our work colleagues and clients whom probably we spend the most time with. We'd be naive to think that they're not watching, wondering, waiting to see if our words are backed up by our actions, if we have integrity. 
I think to my student days and a couple who were known as committed Christians and keen to share their Christian ethics with everybody else. But when they were seen sneaking into each other's rooms at night and it became known that they were sleeping together, people dismissed them as hypocrites. And they said of other Christians, you're all the same. Or maybe you know it for yourself. You've heard those dreadful words that friends and colleagues like to say when you've made a mistake. They say, that's not very Christian, is it? I've lost count of the number of times I've heard that. The joke that I've made in the team meeting or the attitude that I've expressed, which was short of grace and charity. Your heart sinks in that moment. Because by being known as a Christian, you realize you're on show as a Christian. And some people judge harshly. Now, before we turn this into a guilt fest, I must say something about grace and forgiveness. Of course, we'll get things wrong from time to time. That shouldn't surprise us, and it doesn't disqualify us as Christians. Remember Paul's words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Here is a man who knows he messes up, who says that he does it more than anyone else. Christians are not perfect people. They are needy people. But they are repentant people. They are people who, all the more, who see the gap in integrity between our lives and the lives of the Lord, who calls us to be committed to him in obedience and faith, to be committed to narrowing that integrity gap by his grace. When we do get things wrong, we preach grace by saying sorry by admitting that we were wrong and asking for forgiveness, and then confident of that forgiveness, seeking to live changed lives as a result. We ought not to be disheartened when others recognize sin in us, but rather ready to repent and to show them what grace looks like. But here in this context, it's clear that the accusations against Paul are false ones. Now, we can read between the lines and make an educated guess of what they were. I suppose the first risk to Paul's integrity was that he might have been tempted not to go to Thessalonica and to preach there at all. Much easier to stay at home, but he did go and he did speak. And that's no small thing. He faced opposition for the sake of his ministry. He says in verse 2 that he and his team were treated outrageously in Philippi. And then when they came to Thessalonica, he says, uh, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. The temptation surely must have been not to. Putting your head above the parapet is always risky. Going to your front line in your workplace or your home, carrying the message of Christ is always going to mark you out and make you vulnerable. Those who do, when they have nothing to gain from it in human terms, often find that they earn a hearing simply from having the integrity to speak up, even when it's unpopular 
to do so. Paul spoke. And what he spoke was true. In verse 3, his message did not spring from error. If there's a temptation to be quiet, there's a temptation to twist God's word too, to preach a different message to the one that we've received. David Turner has a helpful illustration here. He says, our job is like that of the postman. Deliver the message and don't tamper with it. You don't want things missing from an envelope when you receive it in the post. So we are to pass on the whole gospel, unchanged, unadulterated. Paul spoke. He spoke what was true. And he spoke what was true for the right motives. Again, we can only guess what is hinted at here. Uh, There are impure motives in verse 3 or trickery in underhand tactics. Maybe it was money, sex or power, the three grave temptations, uh, particularly for those with influence. Paul doubtless would have had those. You could sum up those temptations as being those seeking to please yourself. The temptation of twisting or distorting the gospel is the temptation to please others. But notice how Paul's attitude is different. He says, verse 4, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people, nor you or anyone else. No, Paul was not concerned to please himself or to please others. He wanted only to please the Lord. And in so doing, he lived among the Thessalonians with integrity. So much so, he was confident that they knew it to be true of him as well. The question for us then is this, could we say the same thing about ourselves? Are we living with that sort of integrity? Well, let's look on, shall we? Live with integrity, we've seen first of all. Next, love with sacrifice. Love with sacrifice. We're in verses 7 through to 12 here. Instead, uh, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, all our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We've said a lot about Paul's message, what he calls God's gospel, the good news about Jesus. But what about his methods in ministry? What kind of life did he live? It is one shaped by love and sacrifice, because true love always costs, doesn't it? This section here shows us Paul at his most personal Out of all the testimony we have to his character in the New Testament, 
It's here where we see his heart most exposed. When he describes the life lived among the people of Thessalonica, he describes it in family terms. We see him first in verses 6 and 7, describing himself and his co-workers as young children. Not the first thing that comes to mind when you read Paul's letters, but he says that is how he ministered, as a little child. This is humble work, not seeking human praise or flattery. Walking alongside people is never a power trip. It's about making ourselves less, humbling ourselves, becoming little children for the sake of others. Too many want to use power or influence or even the name of Jesus itself in order to control and coerce others. There are scandals of church leaders who have done that, tragically too many. And it can happen from the pulpit, as it can in a small group, as it can in a one-to-one relationship. It's As Jesus said to his disciples, James and John, when they wanted to sit in the seats of honor in glory, Jesus said the pagans want power like that to lord it over people. And then he said, Mark 10, verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is humble work as little children. Then in verses 7 and 8, Paul goes on to describe himself as a nursing mother. This is caring work. It's done out of love and a certain level of devotion too. It's a picture of a parent dealing with a child who keeps crying in the night. We're to be there time and again to encourage and to reassure and to offer food. We love those in our care with the love of a mother for her child. And then again, Paul changes tack, children, mothers. Next, he calls the Thessalonian Christians his brothers and sisters in verses 9 and 10. In fact, this is one of the most enduring features of the whole letter. Again and again, Paul stresses the brother-sister bond he has with these people. In this case, this means hard work. It means that we won't become a burden to those we are ministering among. We'll work night and day. We will labor for the sake of the gospel. And we saw that in chapter 1 and verse 3, didn't we? Uh, Faith, love, and hope looks like work, labor, and endurance. Nobody ever said it would be easy to love our neighbor. Paul says here that it was toil and hardship. But we do it for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, Paul calls himself a father to the Thessalonians. This is encouraging work, leading people to the glory of kingdom living. Paul says that he encourages, comforts, and urges them to live lives worthy of God. 
See how Paul's desire for them is downstream of God's desire for them. What does the Lord want for his people except that they live lives worthy of him as they are called into the glory of his kingdom? That's what we're made for. And as the Lord wants that for his people, so we ought to work through love for the sake of others to that same end. We ought to have that same motivation as the Lord himself has. For the Christian, that means walking alongside them, encouraging them and urging them to keep going. For the non-Christian, it means drawing alongside them, proclaiming the kingdom and serving them with love and care. Because the Lord Jesus has done nothing less than that for us and so much more besides. Above all, our goal is the same. It is to follow Jesus as he calls us into the glory of his kingdom and to call others to walk with us along that same path. So this is what loving looks like. It's hard work and it's a long-term job. Being children in humility, being mothers in caring, being brothers and sisters in labor, being fathers in encouraging. And if we had to have a banner to gather all of that under, we'd have to call it sharing life together. Now look again at verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Preaching the gospel was at the heart of Paul's ministry, but the gospel played out powerfully in his life and action. Paul's love for the people spilled out beyond gospel preaching and into the sharing of life in service through love. And so it is with us. Gospel truth will be backed up by practical acts of love and care. That's difficult at the best of times, and much more so now in a time of lockdown and social distancing. But how much more are people in need these days? Isolated, weary, discouraged, despairing even. It could well be that now is just the time for those who love with sacrifice to make a powerful difference in the lives of those around them. Well, there we have it. Live with integrity and love with sacrifice. By way of conclusion, though, and very briefly, let me mention one final lesson from this passage here, where Paul ends in verses 13 to 16. Listen with obedience. Listen with obedience. Here is verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. We saw last week in chapter one that God's word had come to the Thessalonians as Paul had preached it. And they received the word and they responded to the word in such a way that they could recognize the word at work among them. And Paul ends this section here with a very similar sentiment. 
He reminds them that they have received the word of God and that it can be seen at work in those who believe. The specific example he gives is that of suffering. He says that the Thessalonians have imitated the churches in Judea in that they have faced a similar problem of persecution and have responded to it in a similar way, in faithfulness. There's a contrast made between those who have heard the word of God and rejected it and those who have heard the word of God and responded to it in faith and faithfulness. So Paul gives the example of the Jews of Judea who heard the word of God through the prophets, through the person of Jesus and through the ministry of the apostles. The story of Old Testament Israel is the story of the rejection of the prophets. Some who met Jesus and heard him speak in the flesh participated in the plot to have him killed. Some then persecuted and drove out the apostles, even as they preached from town to town. But others, while others received the word and responded to it with faith, which played out in changed lives. Here's Paul's point, and it's a striking note for us to end on. Many hear God's word, but not all will trust in God through it. It will drive a division. Some will hear of Jesus and will turn against him in their hearts and in their actions. It's why Paul expected opposition and why the Thessalonians experienced opposition and why we should as well. More on that next week. But others, others hear of Jesus and will turn towards him. They will listen with obedience, submitting to him as Lord and living for him as his word gets to work in their lives. When that happens, you can see it. It's happened for the Thessalonians. So, verse 13, we thank God continually. Well, so may it be for us. Shall I pray for us? to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for those who have heard your word and responded to it, for the encouragement that that gives us. And we pray for their witness to be bold and unashamed, to speak of the Lord Jesus and to live for him in each aspect of their lives. Father, we pray that you would give us all the help we need by your Holy Spirit to be such people, people of integrity and people of love and people of obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glory. Amen.